0: It's sure easier to sing that song if it's true. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you know that things are okay between you and God, that song just flows out as a testimony. All right, let's get right to Ezra. We're going to cover that whole first immigration back. There are three waves and we'll cover the first one this morning, It's chapters 3 to 6 of Ezra. Let me begin with an observation. I need to start by confessing to you uh, my sins. Uh, I need to start by confessing to you that I have preached this story incorrectly in the past. And if you hate to hear that, I hate to say it. Trust me. Uh, And uh, I have mistaught this. Uh, I can tell you why, but it doesn't excuse why. Uh, The reason I mistaught it is the tradition I came from taught extreme separation. That's the tradition I came from. Uh, not all of you did, but some of us did, and, and I'm, I'm one of them. And because of the tradition, Letty, that you and I came from, it, it, the downside of that is it taught us to be suspicious of anybody who was not us. Uh, and it set up in the atmosphere of the church kind of a, a, a bad attitude to be wary of anyone who was not theologically identical to yourself, and uh, the best way I know to characterize the atmosphere that the churches that I grew up in kind, kind of overshadowed them—it was a—it's an atmosphere of fear. You're really you're constantly scared of, you know, the church is going to go this way, or the kids are going to go that way, or or you know, the the world's going to hell in a handbasket, or this or that. We just it's like this uh, attitude of fear, uh, and you marry that to an attitude of guilt, and I think that kind of summarizes it. It's kind of fear meets guilt, and if you're not fearful of something, they're teaching you to be, you know, you have heaped upon heaped guilt that take you the rest of your lifetime in therapy to unload the baggage from, okay? So that's kind of fair. Uh As God has reformed my heart in so many areas, especially in the last decade of my ministry, uh, I'm seeing the leaders of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, this post-exile period. Now remember, this is the last story of the Old Testament. So the story we're telling over the next few weeks really goes from they're released from captivity and it's going to take you all the way to Jesus. It's the last story the Old Testament tells even though the books are further in front, you know they're way up in the beginning of the Old Testament, it's the last chronological story of the Old Testament, and uh, I'm seeing the leaders of the post-exile, the end of the Old Testament story, in a completely different light now, because of the Reformation that I've gone through personally, and I, I think you'll see it as well too as we go through the sermon today, but in the post-exile era. You have several really strong leaders. Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel the governor, Ezra the priest, and Nehemiah the next governor. Strong leaders. You have some strong prophets. Uh, Jeremy will be preaching about uh, uh, Haggai next week. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, who in the story of the Old Testament, if you don't know their stories, by the way, you need to be here to hear those. So in a, just a synopsis, you'll know what those books are all about and how it fits leading you up to jesus christ there's some incredibly strong leaders in that group of names that i just mentioned but the leaders in that post-exile period have a lot of flaws and that's what i want to talk about this morning some of you are from a similar background as to me you were taught a lot of fear you were taught to see people through the lenses of us and them there's us And then there's all those liberals out there that are driving America off the cliff. There's us, and then there's them in the neighborhoods out there. And you were taught to see the world through the lenses of us and them. And that worldview created in you an attitude of suspicion towards others. If someone's not like you, you're nervous, you're suspicious. And what it resulted in was in America through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it it led to churches in America that were closed off. And the churches were saying, well, if you're like us, you're welcome to come in. But if you're not like us, you're welcome to stay out. And if you want to come be a part of our community, then come and conform and be like we are. Uh, And if you're willing to be like we are, well, then fine, we'll receive you. But then we woke up after all those decades and we realized how will anyone be like God's people if God's people aren't sharing the gospel with them? How will anybody be like God's people? And how will they get into God's kingdom? And how will God's kingdom advance if the people who are already in God's kingdom won't build friendships with the people who aren't in God's kingdom. If God's people won't build friendships with the lost world beyond these walls, those are the people who need Jesus. And we have to take Jesus to them. We can't demand that they come in and be like Jesus tomorrow. Which means you're going to have to tolerate a, non, a lot of non-Jesus-like behavior until their lives are Transformed. And that's what the church was not really willing to do. Much of our modern Christian tradition hasn't really known what to do with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, let me again say what I said last week. In the original Hebrew language, it's just the book of Ezra. There's not two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. <coughs> it's Ezra and the book of Nehemiah is the ending to, the, you know, it's two halves. But it's just one book. In your Bible, they've separated, so you'll see the two groups of of leaders, really. But theologians in the past, the church hasn't really known what to do with this. Because of the deeply held traditions in our churches, that we're teaching the Bible is primarily about moral instruction. It's moral literature. Because the church taught that, Ezra and Nehemiah don't fit. They're the only book, one of the, the, on a handful that are not quoted in the New Testament, by the way. Nobody in the New Testament is quoting these books. The People haven't really known how to deal with these books much. Ezra and Nehemiah, because of that, are usually turned into examples of leadership. These books become examples of how to lead a revival. How to launch your next church building campaign. How to unify people so that they can figure out how to go forward. And they moralize the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they make it just like some self-help literature. Now, here's where you have to flip the switch this morning. Ezra and Nehemiah are not leadership guides. Now just let me pause and go slow here. This is what I've mistought. Ezra and Nehemiah are not leadership guides. And you may be thinking, well, is that what the world really thinks? Here's what we did this week. We went on to Amazon Books and we did, typed in Ezra and Nehemiah to see what books are being sold about Ezra and Nehemiah. And here's what you get. Lessons on leadership, the dynamics of leadership, leadership in life. Leadership Essentials, Practical Leadership, Leadership a Study Guide. These are not leadership guides. Something's wrong with how we're interpreting the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You say, "Well, how did we get to this?" Well, here's how we got there. We when we open the Bible, we really want it to speak this relevant personal message to us. But the way the Bible goes about speaking the message to you is not similar to a personal self-help book. It is not, doesn't work that way. When the Bible tells its stories, biblical literature does not communicate to you by offering simple solutions and moral examples. As I've told you for 33 weeks now, do not look to the Old Testament for moral examples. If you're going to say to your kids, be like Samson, yeah, don't do that. Be like Jephthah, don't even say be like Abraham. Don't say be arrogant like Joseph. Don't say be like David. You see the problem. There are no people in the Old Testament that are being held up to you and saying, here's a moral example, follow them. What the New Testament writers do is say to you in Hebrews 11... Here are people who had faith, have faith like they had faith. That's what the Bible's saying to you. It's not saying be just like them, it's not saying do what they did. Rather, the biblical stories, the characters in the Bible stories, are deeply flawed people. Can you relate to that? The characters in Bible stories are often morally ambiguous you read the story and at the end you're like is this a good guy or a bad guy i'm struggling to know in my moral meter here where this person fits on a scale of one to ten the bible characters and in the stories of the bible are a mixed bag of success and failure just like you and i Maybe this is what's so troubling about this style of preaching on the Old Testament is it's like looking in a mirror and you're seeing these people do great things and then you're seeing these people do terrible things and I feel like I'm looking in the mirror and seeing myself have a good day and then have a regression week and then have a good month and then have three bad months and then it it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? What it should do, though, for you as you hear these stories and read these stories and apply them is it should ring true and it should ring authentic because there are not many people that you can say, here, be morally just like this person. If you could pick the greatest hero you know, certainly there's things in his or her life that you would say, yeah, but don't do that because people just aren't like that. We are a mixed bag as well. The stories of Ezra and Nehemiah tell a very realistic story of how some religious people who are very zealous to reinstitute worship and to show the world how to see God in the world through a new way in a new post-exile era of their history. These people are full of passion. They're full of love for God. They're full of zeal for God. And they do everything in their power. To lead the Israelites into a new era of devotion and worship to God. And it doesn't work. These are not leadership guides. As a matter of fact, in a few weeks when we get to the end of Nehemiah, you're going to see Nehemiah with a handful of someone's hair that he has removed from the roots of you're going to see bloody knuckles on the other hand of Nehemiah where he has been beating people with his fist for not following the covenant commands of God. Does that sound like the inspirational leadership? Does that sound like the pastoral staff you want to hire? Let's see, Erica, we're going to interview for a youth pastor. When's the last time you beat someone up? Oh, you're not qualified to be a youth pastor then. You know, the, the, Nehemiah goes off the rails in the end of the book. Ezra's going to go off the rails in two weeks zerubbabel is going to go off the rails this week these are not leadership guides but these are stories about how people who really wanted to do something they're not bad people they're like you and i they want to do something for god but maybe they got off track somewhere or maybe they had some really bad models Or maybe they didn't know what to do and they tried and tried to make something happen and they worked their hardest and they prayed their hardest and in the end, their hopes and dreams were not realized. These are not leadership guides on how to be a successful leader. These are how to try to be a good leader and fail guides is what they are. Now you'll remember that the book of Esther was written around the uh, the motif of banquets. Do you remember that? It's like almost every scene was set by a banquet. When you get now to the book of Ezra, almost every scene is set up by royal proclamation. In other words, there are whole chapters in front of you right now that the whole chapter is, and this is the letter that they sent to the king, and there's a whole letter. Uh, The whole story now is being framed around official documents kind of frame the story. And then this document was sent, and then that document was sent, and that causes people to act in this way, and it frames the behavior. To make things a little more complicated in the book of Ezra, the chapters are not in chronological order. So you're like, wow, I'm having trouble following the story. Fine, don't worry. I'll just tell you the story this morning, and we don't have to follow it all in in chronological order. Here we go. It opens with the proclamation of a king, a royal decree. Here we go. Cyrus said... In his decree, remember he overthrew Babylon, the people are captive in Babylon, and now Cyrus says, I'm going to write a royal decree that all of God's people can go back and rebuild. They go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God. Any of God's people can go and participate in that activity. So if you're any of God's people, go and knock yourself out and have a good time. Ezra 1, uh, verses 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, and here is his decree. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem, in Judah, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Verse 4, and in any locality, anywhere in my kingdom, where survivors may be living may now be living the people are to provide them the people going to build god's house with gold and silver with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of god in jerusalem so now the king makes the decree anybody that's god's people you go to jerusalem and build god's house and we will help you anybody in my kingdom that encounters you you're free to say hey how about a little offering to help us go and ...and do what we're going to do. And I want all the kingdom to work together. This is a pagan kingdom of idolaters. I want people to help them go do what they're trying to do. Now, if you're taking notes, and a few of you are, I want you to just... I'm going to give you a quick timeline, okay? So from the creation to Abraham, several thousand years pass. Abraham is about 2,000 B.C. So about 2,000 years before Christ... God says, Abraham, I'm going to do something new with you. For thousands of years, I've been trying to get nations to be my people. It's not working out. I was going to create a new nation with you, Abraham. And so that's about 2000 B.C. Now, you, you, then you know uh, kids and grandkids and captivity in Egypt and Joseph and Moses and all of that. Okay, Joshua finally takes God's people into the promised land around 1200 B.C. Battle of Jericho and onward, 1200 C. So 800 years has passed right there. Once they get into the promised land, David, King David rules around 1000 BC. So the period of the judges and the conquest takes about 200 years. And then Solomon's the first king. Now David, about 1000 years before Jesus, that's David's reign. David's son was Solomon. He reigned after him. But then after Solomon, you remember the kingdom broke apart into two pieces. It's called the divided monarchy israel and judah that's the year 930 after the death of solomon 930 they lived as two nations from 930 until around the 700s bc so for several hundred years they lived as two nations independent a northern nation and a southern nation israel the north judah the south and and there was some friction between them obviously because they were in a divided monarchy and then in the 700s the country of Assyria invaded the north and took 10 of the tribes of Israel captive and took them back and enslaved them okay that's in the 700s BC a couple of hundred years later Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar invades and takes the southern tribes Judah and Benjamin captive that's the story of Esther Daniel Shadrach Meshach Abednego And uh, Ezekiel, okay? They all go into captivity. Now, that that, that happened in uh, 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar. Now, 70 years later, the Persians are the dominant superpower. And the Persians say, if you're God's people, go home. Go home, rebuild your place. And that, what I just gave you, is the whole story that leads you into the days of Jesus Christ. We're in that post-exile period. But from 2000 BC up to where the story is now, 400 years before Jesus, through all of that time being God's people, God's people have lost their identity multiple times. You see, when the northern tribes were conquered by Assyria, they were taken slaves back to Assyria. They intermarried for hundreds of years with peoples from all over the world that were also captives with Assyrians. Some of them went back, some of them escaped they're scattered everywhere and their bloodlines are all mixed up you understand how that happens i'm going to do a a, a wedding on on sunday i, I emailed elijah i said who am i marrying on sunday now uh, is this, are they ukrainians are they romanians i figure we're going to have some ukrainian romanian weddings here at some point because this is the kind of thing war does it mixes people all up and uh, so that happened and then in the next wave babylon conquers Uh, judah uh, benjamin in the south the nation of judah now they're captive for 70 years god told them buy houses plant vineyards you're going to be here a while be good neighbors do you think anybody got married in 70 years are you kidding sure they did do you think any of those uh, young girls and boys from judah went to prom with any of the babylonians you got to know they did I mean, they're, they're mixing together, and, 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 and life is happening. And so, now some people are being really zealous about saying, I will not let my daughter date a Babylonian. And they're keeping paperwork. They're keeping family trees and all of this, as I talked about last week. So now, now you're getting in your mind what's really happening uh, when, when, when the Cyrus says, go back and build, all of God's people can go build Jerusalem, Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, interpret Cyrus's decree in this way. Only pure-blood Jews from Judah and Benjamin can go back and rebuild the temple. That's the way they've interpreted the decree of Cyrus. There's a whole lot of Jews besides those Jews, but they have said in their mind... We who wouldn't let our daughters enter Mary and wouldn't let our sons enter Mary, we are the really righteous ones. And when the king says, go build God's house, he means only us. Now, you'll have to decide who's right and who's wrong in this argument. And this is a good argument. Now, chapter 2 takes that knowledge, and chapter 2 is nothing but 60 verses of names. I, I gave it to you last week. Chapter 2 tells you the story of who's in and who's out, Okay? And you know already, some are in and some are out. And it all had to do with documentation and being able to go to Ancestry.com and and prove you are who you say you are. Now, my task this morning is chapters 3 to 6. That's the continuation of the story now. They're in the land. They're attempting to rebuild the temple. And these chapters, as I said, don't go in chronological order. So let's get to the building begins. As chapter 3 begins, the focus on restoring worship of God centers around the theme of sacrifices they've not yet built the temple the ruins are there you can see the outline of the old foundation you can see where the altar used to be I mean the stones are still there set in the ground although everything looks like it's been knocked over and and bombed out they say you know what we can set up worship even without a building and that's true so they say let's build the altar first and we can go ahead and start the temple sacrifices even without a physical building here. So they, they start building the altar. This is three one. Here we go. Watch sacrifice and altar language in this section. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, this is the high priest, not the old conqueror Joshua. Then Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and, and Zerubbabel, the son of shatiel and his associates began to build the altar of God, of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, verse 3 is curious, and I just want you to file this away for later. Despite their fear of the people around them. Now, this keeps showing up in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and no one can explain it. No one. No, the Bible doesn't explain it. No one knows why the people are causing them fear. Nobody knows why are, I mean are they giants are they menacing looking are they why are the other people around you causing you fear? Do you remember my opening monologue? They cause us fear because they're not just like us. That's what's causing the fear. So let, let me keep reading. Despite their fear of the people around them they built the altar on its foundation They sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what was written in in the law, this is what they're trying to get back to the law for hundreds of years, nobody's kept the law, they celebrated the feast of a festival of tabernacles for the first time in forever with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord. As well as those uh, brought as free will offerings to the Lord, on the first day of the seventh month, they began the burnt offering. Do you get the point here? This whole thing's about burnt offerings. And they've said, if we could just get the altar built, the, not this kind of prayer altar I mean an altar with fire, a, a sacrificial altar, then we can start having worship, we can start doing what the law says and get the Old Testament sacrifice system up and humming again. And so now they've got that going, so now they're starting to uncover the old foundation stones of the temple and lay the cornerstone and the first course, you know, and get that building starting to go up. Now that's what's happening in verse 8. And in the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the people, priests and Levites, chapter 2, those with paperwork, who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord, which I don't even understand that. Does that mean everybody under 20 is slave labor and those over 20 are doing the supervising? I'm not quite sure how that works out here. But anyway, nine, Joshua and his sons and brothers and his sons and the sons of Hinnadad, and their sons and brothers and all the Levites joined together in what's the word yeah see that sounds curious to me too who's doing the work seems like we got a lot of chiefs and no Indians is that politically incorrect not sure we got a lot of bosses and no workers okay and somebody's being real bossy and I'm like well who are all the people doing the work here if everybody's a queen bee in this thing politically incorrect queen bees probably 10 when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with the trumpets and the Levites and the cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, King David of Israel. 11. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. Here's what they sang. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. These are the Psalms that you're familiar with. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And here come the walls. We're going up now. And you can start to see the building starting to, starting to happen now. So in your mind, there's the altar. Smoke's going up. You, you can smell the sacrifices. Here's the foundation now being, being taken up and, and, and everybody's doing their work. And the people gathered together and said, let's have a worship service and let's, you know, dedicate this work to the Lord. And they sing psalms and they play instruments. and every, I mean, this is a big deal, okay? It's a big celebration. When you have not been a nation and now you're a nation. Uh, this is kind of like 4th of July. Meets a religious holiday. Meets Christmas and Easter to you. All smashed together in one. And they're like we're a people again. We're God's people. We're going to worship God. You know, We're going to shoot fireworks. We're going to sing worship songs. We're going to clap our hands. This is, we've been slaves all our life. We've never seen a temple to God. We heard about it. We've seen a lot of temples to a lot of idols as we lived in this world. We've never seen a temple to Yahweh God. Just imagine. We've never, we've, we've, we've been a, seen a lot of worship as we've been in the world. We've never seen worship like this with psalm reading and prayer a, 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 and invoking the name of God. It's a big deal. And so the young people, especially, it's the first time in their life they've ever participated in something like this. So they have this big, massive celebration, verse number 12. But there are mixed emotions. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations and the temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. And no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made much noise and the sound just echoed through the hills and was heard far away. Can you see it in your mind? I'll come back to that in a minute. The others are now rejected. This is a pivotal moment. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin... You say, who are they? We don't really know yet. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to the governors of Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families... And these people said, let us help you build. Because, like you, we seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to your God since the time of the king of Assyria who brought us here. That's the northern tribes in the northern captivity. These are descendants of the other Israel. The ten tribes of the north who were taken by the Assyrians. And they're coming now to the two tribes of the south. And they're saying, let us help you build. We are God's people too. We worship your God. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the families answered, you have no part with us in building the temple of our God. We alone will build it for the Lord the God of Israel, as the king Cyrus, the king of Persia, has decreed. When they interpreted the decree, they interpreted it as, we can do this, but nobody else is allowed to do this. Now you're going to have to decide if they're right or wrong, and you're going to have to do some interpretation here about how you feel about this. But another group has now come to them and said, we worship your God, we've been worshiping your God the whole time. Maybe they were people who never went into captivity, a small handful that stayed in the land the whole time. Or they're the children of the northern tribes mixed with the Assyrian people. Here's what's happening. In trying to get their national identity back, they have to revive the old culture of God's people. And to revive the old culture of God's people before all of this disastrous punishment against their idolatry by going captive... They have to revive their cultural identity, their religious identity. It's all very much tied together. And when they reinstate their religious worship, they tie their religious worship so tightly to Abraham's DNA. They tie worship so tightly to Abraham's pure DNA that only those with documentary proof of being Abraham's ancestor by pure blood will be included in the community of God's people. He said, why did they do that? Well, they did it because of fear. Remember why they were enslaved in the first place? Because they went after idolatry. Remember why they went after idolatry? Because other people worshipped idols and they intermarried with them and they went after their idols and Israel backslid and then God Punished Israel. And so, because of fear, the newly released leadership of the South, Judah and Benjamin, this is Joshua, Zerubbabel, uh, 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 Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, because of this fear, these leaders of the South say, if we let any mixed people in among the congregation, God is going to be so displeased with us because we're letting people who aren't pure blood Jews in that God's going to clobber us and we're going to go back into captivity. And they're afraid that these outsiders will bring in their false gods and corrupt the pure-blood Jews, the purely restored nation. Now, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. Their thinking has some merits. But it was not the outsider that caused the problem. This reasoning betrays the facts of their own history. There are, as I've proven in 33 weeks, many Gentiles in Abraham's family. And they were Gentiles who had a heart for God and said, we leave our idols behind. We're all in for Yahweh God and we will observe all that God said we should observe. We want to be included in the covenant community of God. I've already shown you that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they were not only pure blood Jews in that million person caravan. The Bible says they went up a mixed multitude and they went to mount sinai and received the covenant they said all that's in the covenant we will do those people were not all purebred jews the 12 tribes of israel have gentile mothers abraham and sarah are gentiles when god calls them to start a new nation Uh, it's hypocrisy at a very high level they have analyzed their history these leaders and they have incorrectly concluded that if we let mixed blood people into the congregation, it's going to be a problem. They're wrong. It's not going to be a problem. The problem is that those who have every privilege of being in a covenant relationship with God don't have a heart for God. That's the problem. The problem is that Paul would say later in the New Testament, all those that are Israel are not really Israel. Because Israel is an idea in the mind of God that you would have a heart for god having a circumcision does not make you israel that's uh, uh paul's point in the new testament having a heart for god is what puts you in a covenant relationship with god and it's always been a heart problem that calls the jews to get in trouble with god and go after idols it wasn't rahab it wasn't bathsheba it wasn't ruth It wasn't Tamar that was a problem. They were godly women who wanted to pursue God. It was the purebred Jews who were arrogant and said, We're God's people, but had no heart for God. They wanted all the blessings of God. But they didn't want to be in a covenant with God. They didn't want to knit their heart to God. The northern tribes went into captivity A hundred or more years, maybe a couple of hundred years before the southern tribes went into captivity. And the northern tribes' bloodlines got all mixed up with the Gentile people, especially from Assyria. And what it resulted in was a mixed blood people that you know as the Samaritans. So in the days of Jesus... The Jews are saying, I need to go up to the Sea of Galilee, but I can't. i got to go around because I can't go through Samaria. Well, why can't you go through Samaria? The road runs straight right up there. Well, because they're unclean. Well, why are they unclean? Have Have you read this in the New Testament, right? Well, why are they unclean? This is the old roots of the argument right here. Here's where it all started. Why are the Samaritans unclean? Well, because we decided they were. Their blood is not pure. Well, what does that have to do with anything? What what does that have to do with anything? Well, if we don't have pure blood, we think we're going to offend God. And we've got to do everything by the book, follow all the rules, or God's going to be really ticked with us. No, God's going to be really ticked with you if you come to church all your life and don't have a heart for Him. God's going to be ticked with you if you come to church all your life and you don't really give anything. You don't sacrifice anything. And you don't spend time in prayer. And you don't really have a heart to love him and live for him. God's going to be ticked with you if you come to church all your life and don't make one stinking disciple. You know what the mission of the church is? Go and make disciples. Can you imagine seeing Jesus and say, I was there every Sunday. Great, you were part of the the team. Good to hear, man. Tell me how you did with the mission then what mission? I came to church. That's not the mission. We come to church to get recharged, and have a pep rally. Uh, the mission happens in about 20 minutes when we leave this building. That's when the mission happens. Eric Johnson, I saw that. He looked at his watch, shook his head and said, we'll never be out here in 20 minutes. <laughs> All right. You just added five minutes to the message. You guys keep it up and I'm going to make you pay. All right. All right, so here's what happened. And the wife agreed with you. I should add another five for you, Jennifer. So here's what happened. I want you all to understand this now. Because when you read the New Testament, which is mainly what you're going to read in your lifetime. And you're reading all the stories about Jesus. You're going to see Samaritans on all these pages in the New Testament. And you're going to be like, who are these people who are so terrible? They're not terrible. It's a 400-year feud that starts right here on the page we're on this morning. And it starts right here when a group of Samaritans come to Benjamin and Judah and say, same team, same team. There's thousands of us. How would you like some help clearing the rubble and building the building? This is our God too. And Judah and Benjamin give them the finger and say, get out of here. You have no part here. This is not your God. This is not your place. You're not welcome here. Get out. That's exactly what's happening on the pages of your Bible. It breaks my heart because for the first 20 years of my ministry, the people who taught me to be Baptist taught me to be that way. I don't hate them. They gave me the gospel, they just taught me wrong on this. It was part of the culture of the church in those days, and they taught me so wrong. And I, I, I learned to say, well, if you're not Baptist, you're not right. What a mistake. What a colossal mistake I made. Sorry, guys. What a colossal mistake I made. And that permeated a lot of attitudes. And I'm very sorry that I I led you that way in those old days. And I can't do anything now but try to do the right thing. So forgive me. We're, We're trying to get some things right. If somebody worships the same God you worship, same team, just they're in a different jersey. I mean, same team, though, you know, Uh, we're not enemies we're not adversaries we should be all trying to accomplish the same goal for jesus christ and what happens right here is when they reject them it hurts them so deeply to be told that they have no part with god and no part in the community of god that it sets up an us versus them contest now and the us versus them contest between the jews and the samaritans is going to run 400 years until we get to the time of Jesus Christ, it sets up the culture so that when Jesus walks on the scenes, he has inherited this colossal fight between two groups of people who share the same blood. Isn't that crazy? So let me ask you, what was Jesus' attitude towards the Samaritans? Well, if you don't know, let me clue you in this morning. Whenever Jesus told a story... He loved to put a Samaritan in the story. And if Jesus put a Samaritan in the story while telling it to a Jew from the south, he always made the Samaritan the hero of the story. (sighs) Can you imagine how this made the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests' heads explode when Jesus would tell a story like this? Like this. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus says. How do you read it? And the lawyer said, well, I think the law says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Nice southern Benjamite Jew to Jew. And Jesus said, well, you have answered correctly. Way to go, man. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor exactly? Surely not a Samaritan. (laughs) Only people like me are my people. In a reply, Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. A man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He too, so to a Levite, when he came, passed on the other side. So you you got a priest and a Levite, southern tribes. This is our God, not yours. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the beaten, naked, mugged man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured on oil and wine, put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after this guy, he's recovering. And when I return, I'll reimburse you if you spend more on him than I'm leaving right now. Verse 36, Jesus says to the good Jew from the south, which of these three people in my story do you think was neighbor? Because the question is, who is my neighbor? I want to please God. Jesus said, well, in my story, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Verse 37 The expert in the law replied, well, I guess the one who had mercy on the man. Yeah, you mean the Samaritan? Yeah, so good Jew from the south, go be like the Samaritan. Do you realize what's happening? 400-year fight, and Jesus is saying, if the Samaritan has a heart for God, then the Samaritan is God's good person, not you. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Jesus was uh, constantly having interactions with the Samaritans. I may even preach from John chapter 4 coming up, the woman at the well, Samaritan. And she's asking Jesus, you remember her question? How is it that you being a Jew are talking to me? And you don't understand that unless you understand the squabble from the book of Ezra. I'll tell you why, because those Jews from the south, from Bethlehem and and Jerusalem, where Jesus is from, don't have any interactions with the Samaritans. They've already run them off and said, just get out of here. You're not allowed to work. The temple's not for you. As a matter of fact, Jesus told a story in Luke 17. On his way to Jerusalem, he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met Jesus. Then they stood at a distance and called in a loud voice, Jesus, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said, hey, go show yourself to the priests. Take him care of, guys. You're good. They'll pronounce you clean. Go, I've taken care of it. And as soon as they turned to go to Jerusalem, they were cleansed. It's a great story. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, did a U turn and came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked Jesus, and he was a Samaritan. Isn't it funny? how the people doing the right thing in the New Testament are the people that were chased off in the Old Testament. Jesus asked, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God? Watch Jesus' language. Except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said, there's a man of faith right there. And a gracious man and a thankful man and a good man, and I don't know about the other nine. I healed them, but they've run off. I don't know if they're going to thank God or not for what he's done for them today. Ezra chapter 4 to 6 are about the conflict between us and them. I'm going to characterize it real quick. It goes for chapters. I'm going to just summarize it right now. When the pure-blood Jews reject the Samaritan Jews, and maybe other pure-blood Jews who never went into the captivity, they start a feud, That will delay the temple building for 15 years. Because the southern Jews chase off the northern Samaritans. The Samaritans send a letter. To the king of Persia. And they say to the king of Persia. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. These Jews who are rebuilding the temple are jerks. That's a paraphrase. Okay. We tried to help them and they chased us off. King Look into the history books and let us make a prediction. The time will come when these people in the south will rebel against you and they'll stop paying their taxes. And if you look in the history books, you'll see that's the long history of these people from Jerusalem. And you know what? The Samaritans were really messing them up right here. They're going to throw a, a monkey wrench into the, to the gears of progress. And the king gets the letter and he looks at the history books and he says, these people always have been rebellious against Gentile kings. Those Samaritans are telling the truth. And you know what will happen? Eventually Alexander the Great will come and then he'll die and his kingdom will go to four. One of the generals will take it and Israel will rebel against them. The Romans will conquer them and you know what will happen? In 70 AD the Jews will rebel against them. It's a long cycle of of Jewish history. Samaritans were telling the truth, but they were telling the truth in a very spiteful way, and they really colored the story. When the king got the letter, he's like, hey, send, send, send a telegram over there and tell them stop the building. I want to research this and see what's going on. For 15 years, the Samaritans shut down the building project of the temple, and they could not move forward. Jeremy will tell you the rest of that story next week. Now, This sets up the next two parts of the story that will follow the exact same pattern. These are not leadership lessons. They tell a story of starting a good project for God, stopping the project of God, restarting the project of God, stopping the project of God, starting, fighting, battling, backsliding, getting the project to completion, and then fizzle at the end. That's the story that's being told. So let me tell one my part of it this morning. So the temple is rebuilt now. Okay? We fast forward. They've been building zip. They got the building up. And the ending of the first story, the first wave of immigration, is completely anticlimactic. They're, they're building the building The young people are cheering, we've never seen a temple, look, the worship of God, the young generation who's never seen anything like this think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and all the older people, they've got to be (laughs) over 70 years old, for sure, because they were in captivity a long time, the older people who remember the former temple have come back as well and all the old people are over here with their walkers crying and they're, they're weeping. Because they remembered the first temple of Solomon. And they're like, this one ain't that one. And you're like, well, what is going on in this story? Well, let me tell you what's going on. What made the temple special was the presence of God. That's what a temple's about. A temple is about where people, it's holy space, where people meet with God. That's what a temple is. That's what the Garden of Eden is, a temple and every day, God met there with Adam and Eve. It's a place where God and man connect. It's a place where heaven and earth touch. And that's what every temple that's to Yahweh is designed to be. That's what the tabernacle is. God and man meet there. So what the Solomon's Temple was, God and man meet right there. Now they're building uh, the new temple, and they get it going up, and it's not right. You see, under Moses' leadership, they dedicated the temple in Exodus chapter 40 when Moses' tabernacle, the portable temple in the wilderness. And by the way, there's a lesson in this too. The reason there was a portable temple is because God's people were not settled. They were nomads in those days. And worship accommodated the culture of the people. And later, you say, well, God never changes. Well, that's, you're not interpreting that correct. God's character doesn't change. But how they worshipped him totally changed. There was no choir and choir director. and all that. David and them introduced all of that in the new uh, temple of Solomon later. It was a permanent. And it, it changed a little bit about how they operated the worship service in the days of Solomon. It wasn't at all like it was in, in the tabernacle. Let me read to you two dedications really quickly. Exodus 40. Here's when they dedicated the tabernacle. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and he put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard and Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted up from the tabernacle, they would set out and follow it. It was was a GPS that guided them. God's presence guided them. And if the cloud stayed, then they stayed. They stayed in camp. Nobody broke camp. Verse 38. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their 40 years of travels. That's what the dedication looked like in the old days. Let me give you Solomon's dedication. 2 Chronicles 7. Watch how God shows up. When Solomon finished praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord had filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped the Lord saying, He is good. His love endures forever. And then the king, Solomon, and all the people offered sacrifices to the Lord. I want to say this just cuz you can you guys are from Texas and you know what a lot of cows look like. And King Solomon offered as a sacrifice on that day 22,000 head of cattle. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a lot of beef. Offered 22,000 head of cattle at the dedication service of the Temple of Solomon and 20 120,000 sheep and goats. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of meat. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. You know what made the temple and the tabernacle in the old days special? God showed up. The glory of God came down and said, I'm here to meet with my people and we are in a covenant relationship. In both building projects, God showed up in temple worship system and God's glory remained until some catastrophic event later. But when Zerubbabel, our story, when the governor Zerubbabel finishes the temple in 515, they have the celebration. The young people are cheering. The old people are crying. The glory of God does not show up. Now, that's embarrassing. You've built a house for God, you've chased away anybody who wanted to help. And you've got it all going in a good way. And and, and listen, these aren't bad people. They're misguided people. They're good people trying to do things in a wrong way. And, And when they get ready to dedicate the house of God, the old people start crying and they're saying, yeah, there's something missing. God. And that's not a small thing. In the Old Testament, you remember some stories where God withdraws his presence and they say write ichabod above the door for the glory of the lord has departed what a sad thing that you could be having church without god what a sad thing and the young generation didn't know the difference because they had never seen the former the old people are over here weeping saying something's not right we're trying to do a good thing but something's not right God has not put his glory among us let me close the message this way God is not exclusive to one DNA God is not exclusive to America there is no culture on planet earth that can claim exclusivity to God God is looking for a people any people who will have Abraham's faith, not just Abraham's DNA. God did want a temple rebuilt. God did want these people to lead. God did want the nation restored. God did want worship restarted. But God wanted the temple doors to be open to everyone. God did want the gates and the walls of Jerusalem, but He wanted the gates open God wanted Jerusalem and Israel to be a shining light to all the nations of the world where all the peoples, anyone who had a heart for God, would be considered welcome in the house of God. When you get to the modern uh, temple and there's like the courtyard of men and the courtyard of women and the courtyard of the Gentiles and none of that was in the original. All that was added later. God wanted the doors open so the people could come to Jerusalem and look to Israel his people and say we want to be a part of you and worship your God Zerubbabel Ezra and Nehemiah are attempting good things But it really appears in these stories that you can do the right want to do the right things and want to do good things And you can end up doing them in a wrong way While trying to do something for God we forget that what God wants is people Who have a heart to worship him and all people can be his people God had an idea and the idea was called Israel, an idea that people would have a heart for him and he would have a covenant relationship with those people. It's not about DNA. It's about faith in God. Now I'm going to fast forward the story for the close. The church is the new Israel. The church is the new Israel. Here in the church, you fit into the family as long as you have faith. That's all that's required. You say, Well, Pastor, let me tell you my background. I want to know one thing Do you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you have that, we can fit you here into the family and community of God, and everything else can be worked out. All the baggage can be dealt with, all the history can be processed, we can find new ways forward we can get you with disciple makers but faith is the entry point to a relationship with god through our lord jesus christ god is not concerned about your dna he's very concerned about your heart and he wants all of it and he wants it dedicated to him that's what he wants what i learned i learned a lot of lessons from this wrong attitudes can last for generations Wrong attitudes and wrong teaching about God can become some very heavy baggage that we give to our kids And they will carry it some of them for generations before they figure out how to set it aside A word to parents this morning Parents cannot command that their children attend church and think that that will create a heart for God Parents cannot impose a litany of rules and think that rules will create holiness in their children A heart for God must be modeled. It must be modeled. This is discipleship. It's modeling Christ to another group of people, to another generation. By modeling faith in God and by modeling love for God, you put your family in the very best position to have generational Christian faith. By modeling Christ and modeling a love for God, you put your family in the very best position for your children and grandchildren to know Jesus Christ. And then I will even give you a footnote, a little asterisk. But every individual in your family has to make their own choices. Here's what I learned from this. That we all need to check our attitudes towards others. Christian, there is no us versus them. There is only we... Who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone else out there is a potential we. And that's the way we should see them. We are in God's kingdom. By faith in Jesus. And we want everyone. To be in God's kingdom by faith in Jesus. The doors are open wide for everyone to enter. But they have to enter by faith. And if you've never done that. I'm going to lead you in a prayer in about one minute. To enter the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. A footnote about the names now and the people. The list of names that go to rebuild the temple are important. Because these are real people. That really lived. And really wanted to do something for God. And they have real families and real children and real stories. Listen carefully. Their names are recorded in the Bible as an eternal witness that they had faith and these people they married their faith with courage and these people were willing to leave their homes in babylon and other places and do they dared to do what others were not willing to do they uprooted their lives and went to try to build a community to restart the worship of god and i realized this morning that our world looks very different Jesus has now really opened our eyes to the multicultural and global nature of God's kingdom. He has opened our understanding that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. And making disciples for Jesus Christ in this generation requires a group of men and women to marry courage with their faith. Uh, one of the things that I'm the most proud about, and using pride in the right sense this morning, of you is that you are risk takers. I'm looking into the eyes of a lot of risk takers. You're willing to take courage and risk and faith and put it all together, as I often say, Indiana Jones meets Jesus, and just figure out what it's going to look like. Be adventurous for God. We must dare to do, in our present generation, what other Brothers and sisters who are good people are not willing to do. Don't be afraid to invest in the kingdom of God. Don't be afraid to set aside a week of your vacation and go with us on a mission trip. Don't be afraid to invest in the lives of someone at your kitchen table and be authentic and open your home and open your life. This is our generation. We must do our part, and it's going to require commitment of purpose, commitment of time, commitment of energy, commitment of resources. You say, well, okay, let's do it. Well, I want to warn you, we're going to face some resistance. You always do. Listen, we may face a setback or two or three. That's okay, too. Because if we commit ourselves to following the leading of God's Holy Spirit, we're going to accomplish something in our lifetimes, something eternal. You're going to accomplish something eternal, something that matters. Listen, if you make some disciples and you help us invest in disciples and you make some here, you're doing something eternal that matters. You're modeling the life of Christ to a new generation. I'll close with this statement. If God remembers the people listed in the book of Ezra for their deeds in the past, same God. Surely, God is remembering you for your efforts right here in the present. If their names are recorded for eternity, then surely your names are recorded somewhere also in the record of God. If God commended them for building a temple that's only symbolic then surely God commends you for investing in the lives of people because people are the real living temple of the Holy Spirit you're doing the real work God does not live in a building made with human hands God lives in his people you are the temple of God and if you are making disciples then you have the promise of God I will never leave you I will never forsake you And I will be with you to the end of the age. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, this morning you're challenging us. That as we do your work, attitudes matter, people matter, outsiders matter. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring conviction right now on the areas of our lives that need to change. And just speak to us in our inner person right now and whisper into our hearts, this attitude needs to change. This behavior needs to change. Holy Spirit, as you bring those things to our mind, we're going to confess them as sin this morning and we're going to ask you to forgive us. Maybe it's neglect, maybe it's lack of commitment. some Christians in the room just continue to carry the baggage and they won't let it go God I pray that you'd help them to confess that as sin as well this morning and let it go God I've confessed my sin publicly this morning of misrepresenting some of these stories when in my ignorance I did it but I did it I just want to say to you before the whole congregation in this prayer, God, I know you forgive me. And I want to thank you for being patient and leading me to the truth ultimately. And I want to say publicly, God, to you as a whole congregation of witnesses here, Lord, if any of us are believing anything that's not right, Would you gently lead us to the truth in the coming days? Lord, we want to follow you, not just the letter of the law. We want to follow the heart of Jesus Christ. So God, be patient with us, please. And gently lead us to the correct understanding. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you just to talk to God for just a moment the Holy Spirit speaking something to you don't don't ignore his voice right now in your prayer you say Holy Spirit I hear you I hear you I acknowledge you and I, I feel conv- your conviction about these things or this thing and I with your help I want to change that part of my life whether it's an attitude or an action or behavior maybe you're disengaged from the mission You need to engage. Tell God that right now. Whatever you need to do, tell God right now. Say, God, I'm here. I'm hearing. I'm willing to change. I want to grow. God, I need, and you just fill in the blanks right now with God. While Christians are praying, I want to say to anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you feel like you're outside of the family of God because you've never received Christ as your Savior by faith, just because you were born to Christian parents doesn't mean you have a personal relationship with Christ or just because you're an American or all the privileges we have you personally need to make a choice and choose Jesus as your Savior the New Testament makes it really clear and tells us by a prayer of faith whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and I'm going to ask you this morning if you've never done that To pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart and save you. You can use my prayer as a guide, but you'll have to mean the prayer in your own heart. Pray like this: Make your prayer to God and say, Dear God, God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior this morning. I can't save myself. I see that. this sin that I carry is like a burden God I need to let it go but I can only let it go if I'm forgiven God this morning I want you to know that I believe what I've heard from the word of God Jesus I believe you are the son of God who came to this earth as a man and died on the cross was buried and rose again to be my savior Jesus, I'm putting all of my faith and my trust in you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. So I accept your forgiveness this morning, and I ask for it, and I receive it. Take all of my sin and wash it and cleanse it away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I receive you into my life as my Lord and my Savior, God, this prayer is the way that I bend the knee to you and call you my king. From this moment forward, you're calling the shots. You're in control. And you are my Lord. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me today. Help me to live for you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, I ask this prayer. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to just ask one thing of you if you prayed that prayer with me this morning. Several of our deacons are in the back of the room and when we dismiss this service, I'm going to ask you to walk up to one of those deacons and you just, there's men and women back there and you just walk up to them and say, hey, I prayed with the pastor this morning. That's all you need to say. But the Bible says, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. It's very important that you share your decision with someone and let them pray for you and encourage you Maybe you were saved several weeks ago and you have never told anyone Share that good news with someone this morning on your way out Father bless your people this morning We've got a busy week ahead of us and God we're going to need you every minute of every day God I pray that you would guide our decisions and our attitudes God as we go We know we take you in the temple of our body with us. Holy Spirit, be our guide, be our friend, be our companion. Strengthen us, empower us. Give us boldness and courage. God, give us grace and love and kindness and gentleness as well. Lord, help us as we see people on the outside of faith this week. God, give us just the right kind words that will unlock the door of their heart. Give us a message to share with them. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Moses said, may the Lord bless you and may he protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you. and May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor. And may the Lord give you peace. God bless you. See you next Sunday.